tonight we're kind of delving a little bit further into inerrancy and infallibility, which we started last week. And tonight you're going to see a chance for Jeremy and I to kind of go back and forth a little bit and discuss it further and see if we can help you to maybe understand a little bit better. But please jump in like always. This is your forum, so you get to jump in whenever you feel like it and say whatever you need to. Um, these are some of the books we've gone through already. Uh, there'll be a couple more by next week to finish up on translations. Uh, let me give you some disclaimers about tonight. How's that? You know it's going to be serious if I've got to put some disclaimers up. All right? Here's some disclaimers about tonight. And I, I kind of felt it after last week's discussion, so I think it's just to give you a couple things that my thoughts to think about. Belief in inerrancy is not penultimate to the Christian faith. It is not, in my mind, a requirement of salvation. It is not, in my mind, like the thing that we should be fighting for above all else. You've heard me take a pretty strong position in defense of inerrancy, but I want to be clear that it's not penultimate. There were people in here last week that I've traveled with for a long time that took a different position, and you might take a different position as well. That's okay. However, I do want to point out that belief in inerrancy or the lack of belief in inerrancy is not inconsequential. So just because it's not penultimate doesn't mean it has no consequence. It does have consequence both ways. It has consequence on developing your view of God and developing maybe other things that flow out of it. So some of the people in here have kind of staked their claim one way or another. Some of the other people in here just don't care. And I want to point out that both extremes probably miss the mark a little bit. There are consequences to understanding what this means. And whether you believe it or not, it still has consequences. So we shouldn't, in other words, ignore the question. But I think if we make belief in this one doctrine, the ultimate thing above all else in our faith, I think we've missed the point. Let me put up another disclaimer. I'm not a biblical scholar. I have to make that disclaimer because I've been reading lots of scholars' work. And I realize that as I stand up here, what can I tell you in an eight-week series, in a 12-week series? Heck, we could study for two years together. What could I give you that hasn't already been said? What is my role? My role is kind of a researcher. My role, I've always said, is I'm a logician. I'm able to evaluate arguments. That's what I do for a living as an attorney. I listen to people's arguments and I evaluate the logic and I follow them through to see if they hold up. But I'm not a scholar, and that means that I want you to do your own scholarship. Me coming in here and telling you what the great scholars have written about on all sides of an issue is not a substitute for you finding out for yourself. I'm just hoping to interest you enough to give you small tools to at least maybe be able to defend or think about a certain position. And that's about it. Last week you saw this tension as some people wanted to go much deeper into it. It's like, great. That's why we put the books up there. I can even point you to specific chapters that might address your concerns within certain books. Or I can even tell you which theologians might support or that you should read because you disagree with. But this is just a taste. This is like the skimming of the surface of an issue as deep as this. But again, I don't think it's the penultimate issue. I think it's an important issue, and I think most of us need to go much deeper, even in reading people we disagree with. I want to be careful tonight because one thing I've always seen is we need to examine our own finite natures. We need to examine the fact that we have hidden biases even when we approach things, and you're going to see that maybe even tonight as I maybe let out a little bit more of my views. But we have to remember that we're trying to understand an infinite God with very finite minds, and we always seem to start with an idea of, I'm going to first use my finite mind to examine the infinite and then determine what I think about the infinite. That may be a task we always have to do, but we should at least be careful whenever we're on that track 
That's why I say we should stay away from embracing theology based on reaction or experience or just by induction, meaning I'm just going to investigate it and what I find out, that's the ultimate truth. That would seem to be strange on any level. If we even believe there's something infinite, we should remember, I don't think anybody here claims that they're on par with whatever is infinite and ultimately true. So just keep those in mind, just some things to get us started. And just to give you where we were last week, where we left off, is I threw up some arguments that are against inerrancy and hoping as a jumping off point to at least get you thinking, to give you some shortcuts of what other people think is wrong with it. You might have your own views. And that's where I want to stop, right there. So Jeremy, come on up. And let's start this discussion and see where it ends up. I'm just going to leave these up here, by the way. So it might help you focus a little bit on maybe something you want to ask. So I take it that one thing we can agree on from the beginning is, we've said this before, even when we talk about inspiration, God reveals himself in some way, right? And we use that as a jumping off point. And then it seemed like we went to a secondary point, which is where you and I started to have some disagreements about what inspiration really was all about. And last week I said that if you take a certain view of inspiration, the one that I took, which is kind of that God, the Holy Spirit, somehow superintends this process of inspiration, and that in his sovereignty he's not going to allow the human authors outside the boundaries of that sovereignty, then that leads to the view of inerrancy that has come out. That's kind of where I am. But for you, because you don't take that view of inspiration, this doesn't seem to be much of an issue, is that right? Yeah, I think we might agree that God exists. Is that the only thing we'll agree on? Yeah, right, maybe. Uh, we, I, I think uh, part of the issue is I have been reflecting on this series, and I think we'll get into this maybe towards the end, is how one conceives of God or one, on how one understands the very existence of God really impacts everything else that flows from there. So it really impacts how you view um, the text, it impacts how you view the transmission of text, it, it, it impacts how you understand revelation, it, it impacts all those things. And I think that that might be one area in which maybe some confusion and conflict has come up in that if we're operating with a different understanding of the very nature of God, then that changes the rules of the game. And I might be operating with a different set of rules, and you're operating with a different set of rules, and I think mine are important, you think yours are important. Um, so hopefully we can unpack some of that tonight. But I would say that definitely, um, you actually mentioned it earlier when you talked about God's infiniteness. I think that's pivotal to understanding or to unlocking this issue. Because for me, and, and very simply in my view, it is because God is so inexhaustible and God is in fact beyond the categories of our language and our finite comprehension. God does not exist within the limits of our rules and dogmas and doctrines and logical categories. God escapes those. So even when we put down in writing, however many years ago these authors started to write stuff down, language is an attempt to capture that which cannot be captured. It's an attempt to, to record the symbol which cannot be defined, that being God. So I think maybe as we just talk more tonight, or maybe as I ask you, why is inerrancy so important? 
And by the way, I'm not saying, by the way, that, um, and, and I think John already mentioned this, I certainly don't think that it's not an issue that you shouldn't worry about. Inerrancy doesn't play a role for me in how I interpret text or how I understand faith. But I certainly would not go so far as to say, you don't need to worry about it. I mean, you should think about it. But I, yeah, I think my first question would be, why is it so important? Not that it's so important, because I don't want to say that I don't want to misconstrue you as saying, because you've already said it's not the most important thing, but what is it that drives your concern for it? Well, let me address also, before I get to that, the adequacy of words. I don't know that we will ever be able to have words that will capture the essence of God and its completeness. But, you know, the same scripture that says that my ways are not your ways, my ways are higher than your ways, are actually an attempt to communicate an idea to a prophet and to tell him to say specific things to people. God over and over told prophets, go and tell these people this thing in words, oftentimes in writing, but most of the time verbally, go tell them these things. So I want to be careful of not saying that I, I agree that we will never be able to capture God in any way, whether in thought or in word, but to humans, especially those of us who use vocabulary, which is unique among all creation, words are the essence of everything. I mean, it's telling that John calls Jesus the Logos, the Word, and he even uses that identification. Like, words are very, very important to us as humans. And I don't think that God, being so infinite, at the same time does not want to reveal himself. I mean, there seems to be an act over and over of God revealing himself. And the only way he could really do that, except by sight, which is very rare, and we know that also, the text in John says that you know, no one's seen God. It seems to be in words. Um, so when we come to the written word, I'm not saying that's all there is, but words are pretty much all we have. The, the pushback I would give on that is to say, however, words are fixed. And they're fixed to specific historical context. And they're, they're fixed to a cultural understandings. And that, now that doesn't mean that we can't understand it because the words were somehow fixed in a different time and not for ours and we can't understand it. But what I want to say, it's not even so much a disagreement as because the nature of words, language, is fixed, they are not the end authoritative result, the experience of the word, existence, being, whatever it means to be, right? To be God, to be human. That's how we perceive. We first perceive, then we turn around and we write, or we try, we fix it in a particular context. And that's where I have to stop and pause there. That, that's the first initial problem for me, is that, not that God transmitted something by writing it through some process, but that by our very nature of being human and finite, that that becomes a fixed word, a fixed historical point in time. Not that the word can't be trusted, but that language is in and of itself a fixed thing. And we need to be aware of that. And I think there we would agree again, because that's why I said last week that once we settle on the text, whether it's an Aaron or otherwise, that doesn't take away the job of interpretation or all the other things that we have to do to put ourselves back in that context. It will affect it, of course, which way you come out. But it's not the end of the analysis, and I think that's very, very clear among all good scholars, no matter what side they come out to, is this is kind of like setting the table. I think, though, that 
the reason I look at words as being so important is this is a very good way for God to communicate with us. I mean, it's true that if I'm the one that has the revelation from God and I'm trying to write about it, words may not be as adequate as seeing it or the truth that was behind it. But now as I start to repeat it to other people, there is nothing better than words because unless they have to experience it themselves, which would put God in the place where he's got to reveal himself in that way to every single person. I mean, if I say to you, like, cold rushing spring, those are like three words, but you might envision what I'm talking about. It might not be the same exact thing that I saw. It might not even be adequate to really, if you saw it, you go, oh, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. But it's closer. And the more words I add, hopefully, and the more I tell around it, the closer it would come to what I experienced. But I think that's the beauty of God's revelation, is that if it comes in the form of word, originally oral in some way, and later, if we can put it in writing, then it becomes something that all people can experience. And that experience can be repeatable in, in some way. You asked me about why inerrancy seems to be such an important doctrine. I think it's a logical outflow for me. I start with an idea, not of trying to defend the text and saying, like, if you take out like one thing, the whole thing falls apart. I know there's plenty of people across the world who have that view. That's probably what I referred to last week as the view of the laity. There's a lot of people who have been told, like, it's a slippery slope argument, like one thing is wrong, the whole thing is wrong. Well, that's probably an immature argument. I think the place where I start is to step back. Like I'm thinking, who is God? And what is he trying to do? And I believe in a God, so I have a view of God that is trying to reveal himself, and I see it in multiple ways. But in this way, I see it as a great way to do it, not only because words can be recommunicated, but because you said they're fixed in some way. So I have something that I can test even later revelation or later tradition or whatever comes up over time, even if I feel like the Holy Spirit is pushing me to do something, I'll be honest, that may be too amorphous. You know, I want something to backstop against or to feel like I can measure against. And I think the Word gives us that. I mean, I have to start with who I believe God to be, somebody who wants to specifically reveal who He is to me. And from that point, I think, okay, if He's going to do that, I believe in a God who has sovereignty and who can put the boundaries around whatever sorts of free will and circumstances might exist to get the result he wants. And that leads me to think, well, if he did that with the text, so there's my view of inspiration. Once I get to that view of inspiration, you know, one that is, as I've said, the fancy theological word is superintended by God, but one that is, is overseen by God, I just can't get to another place where I say that God would oversee a flawed prophet. I'm not saying that if that came to pass, that I would stop believing in God. I'm just saying that as I look at it logically, it would seem to me that he's just making sure that it comes out to be the revelation he wants, so that these words are not just containing his revelation, but they are his revelation. And if I come to that point of inspiration, I have to believe that it's inerrant. When I say that language is fixed, I'm not arguing that language is fixed even by God. Language is fixed by those who first communicate it. So it's really not an issue for me to have to say that God superintended or that God was even directly involved in the writing down of the transmission of the text because its fixing comes from our finite attempt to talk about it, to write about it, to explain a symbol of faith, but its fixing becomes, or it's done by us. It's not necessarily done by God because 
when we say God is behind something, we still can't say that God must be behind that thing. Who are we to say God must be behind anything? God escapes us. The categories of God, the ways in which God operates are fundamentally inexhaustible, infinite, beyond our ability to grasp that. And I, again, I think for me, it's, it's that philosophical problem or it's that philosophical mind bender that opens up for me the space where I, I'm no longer concerned with making sure that this is what was revealed by God and that it was revealed consistently. Those questions go away because now what becomes important are what is the kind of truth that is being that is contained or being conveyed in this revelation? I think it's important to consider when we're trying to say that the logical end to all these steps is inerrancy. Not that the logical train is inconsistent, but that the very logic with which we used is fixed by us. We're playing our own game. We create the language, we create the concepts to deal with this infinite, this non-finite thing. And I, and I think that that is something we don't give pause to. And we're very quick to do the opposite, which is to say, well, God is this, this, and this, and God must be these things, so therefore, the next, all of this follows. And that's not necessarily the case. When we're, when we're honest with ourselves, the very way in which we describe God conforms to our cultural context, it conforms to our own understanding of our finiteness, which is finite and not infinite. But I believe that the infinite can control the finite to at least express in the finite's own language what the infinite wants to communicate. Okay, so the question at this point is, why? Why is that element of control that you just mentioned, why does that have to be there? I guess there's two ways to approach it. Let me approach it the first way. If God is trying to communicate with us, and if he is involved in the authorship of these texts, then that control seems to be, in my mind, implied in there, that he's authoring to give us his word. Right? That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from an idea of, like, this must be inerrant. I believe in a God who's not going to lie, who's not going to tell things that are not true as he's communicating. So that it's not the author trying to communicate to other people, this is what I experienced, but God was using that author to communicate what he wanted people to know. This is God's word, not just a, a, a witness to it, or not just containing it. And God's purpose is to communicate to us through that word. I would disagree, because even the gospel writers, and some theologians will talk about it this way, even the gospel writers were talking about God and Jesus symbolically. It's not that they were just sitting down and writing, and this is what happened, and this happened, this, this happened. That's, not, that's really not just what they were doing. They were using their language and their understanding of God to say things about this greater divine thing. And when, as soon as you start talking about God symbolically, as soon as you start bringing in the concept of symbol, right, that's where it starts to get difficult. I think we both agree that God is not finite. And, and however we understand that, timeless and all the different things we add to it, but I still believe he's trying to be in a relationship with us. Now, for someone who is considering inerrancy, I think a fair charge to make is to kind of get into the issue of, well, 
where does your concept of God come from? This God that's trying to communicate with you and that he's trying to do this in a way like, I think it's fair to say, doesn't come from the very scriptures that I'm actually trying to say God inspired. I think that my idea of God's revelation comes from other examples of God's revelation, and I see great parallels in them, and I see that that there's a beautiful intricacy to them. Like, for example, we can say that God is not going to work with human beings and produce like this inerrant text, because it's not possible, because humans are behind it. But I don't see that that actually flows logically all the way through. Why couldn't you have done that? I think that's very possible to do. Um, I don't think human beings have to be fallible, for example. Like we say to err is human, but that's not, I don't know that that's a biblical doctrine. I mean, to accept that anybody who's human must be fallible in everything they do would be to say that Adam wasn't human until he sinned, or that we won't be human when we go to heaven and become glorified and stop sinning, like we'll no longer be human, and I, those are not true. We're not going to cease being human. Um, any more than Jesus was not fully man when he did not sin. So I think that's something that I look at and say, okay, so there's an example I can draw from, that it is possible that you can have this inerrant or unsinful, untainted experience of humanity. You can also have an example of revelation that has nothing to do with Scripture. Like I see the incarnation, like God coming in the form fully divine and fully man at the same time, and coexisting in those two natures at the same time. And I see that as a parallel to how I view Scripture. Like divine authorship and human authorship simultaneously with no conflict between those. That God could do that, and in my view, did do exactly that. That he was allowing everyone to do whatever they were going to do in writing these books, but at the same time, his sovereignty was controlling the outcome so that in the end, it was of divine authorship, even though humans were authoring it the whole way through at the same exact time. Yeah? Well, about the like, fallible nature of God's I don't think it necessarily just has to be that or like any idea of well we're sinful so we're fallen or something. But like just that we're not perfect and we can't capture things, we can't shred things, we can't do things with the exact accuracy. We're so limited and our experiences are limited to ourselves. We're culturally conditioned, like all of these things, um, that and I, even with language, is limited, and, and you can try to express something you feel, but it, it doesn't really do it justice. And things like that, we're not, we don't have the ability to capture everything perfectly or do everything perfectly. I may see something, you know, and Phil sees something, and it's, we see it differently. And even though the same thing happened, type of thing. I see that, but again, inside and outside of Scripture, I see God constantly using human beings in their fully fallible nature. Like his commands to us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is silly when he could do it so much better. His commands for us to care for the poor are silly when we haven't done it for thousands of years. His command to us to do anything becomes silly because if we say, well, we're fallible or we're not able to do it or we're not capable, then why does God interact with humanity at all? It would be easier to just set us up to worship him and do everything else on its own. And I see that when it comes to scripture, like we're saying, he's giving it to people who are not perfect, who are not able to do certain things. I agree with that. 
And yet through that, he's still saying, I choose that to be my revelation and my word, just like I choose to use all humanity for all things when it would be so much easier to do it on my own. But if, if yeah, things, God's not always working really, like, really efficiently or something through us, and God can do something better than we could, or things like that, but then why is it that all of a sudden we get to this thing, like texts and these documents, like, oh, well, this has to be perfect. But if everything else and all, all the other ways of God working in the world is, like, not perfect, why, why does this have to be? The, the biggest answer that's given by people who support inerrancy is to say, if it's not all the way through truthful in every single instance, and it contains even minor imperfections, why would I even believe you about those things if the other things don't seem to be true? It sounds like a slippery slope, but I'd like to read you this quote real fast. This is somebody defending inerrancy. They say, if you tell me that the Bible has numerous inaccuracies of history, science, and even ethical natures, but that it is absolutely without error in all those wonderful, unbelievable things about God in heaven, I would likely respond that you stretch the bounds of credibility in asking me to believe all these things that I have no possible way of confirming, while at the same time, the things that I can confirm, those don't turn out to be true. By the way, to quote that, that's a guy named Paul Feinberg, who's a theologian writing that. So I see the argument that the reason Scripture takes on this special character is because it seems to be what people would call the normative revelation of God or a very specific revelation of God against which to measure things. But this person's taking a step further and saying, if there's inaccuracies in small things that we might allow for, and I heard it last week in this room, like, well, who cares if they didn't know how many stars there were? Who cares if they didn't really understand where the creation came from? I mean, they, how could they understand it back then? Like, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't affect who Jesus is and what happened in, in time when, when he came in the incarnation. Those are the big important things. I hear that, and that's the temptation of saying, why even worry about this whole subject? This person would respond and say, yeah, but if the things that I can confirm I don't trust, why would you ask me to confirm the things I can't confirm? Like a resurrection, or like a God who's beyond time, or like there is a future in glory. Like why would I even believe you about those things if the other things don't seem to be true? Especially if there's a claim of some kind that God was involved in this in some way. I'm more convinced by that than I'm not convinced. The place where I would critique this is to say, I think this person's a subject of their own time. Like, we always say you can't hold the Bible to 21st century norms, right? But this concept of truth and veracity and credibility of if you tell me one little thing here isn't true, I can't believe the whole thing, that's also a 21st century view as well. Like, it may be very possible that if we went back in time and the scriptures were written down and you pointed out to somebody that there was an error, they'd go, ah, okay, no, but that doesn't change my mind about the rest of it. Whereas in our culture, it would totally affect your view of the whole thing. So... I uphold it as something I kind of think is a good defense. I critique it as they may be engaging in the very same thing that they criticize others of doing. Well, we do know for you know, fact in some cases that people in ancient times didn't, weren't as concerned with things like that, if this word was accurate or something. I mean, we have a few lists of like scribal changes that they wrote down, no, we changed this for this reason in the Bible, like, some scribes kept the list and we changed this. And so it's clear that back then they didn't have that really strict view. It was 
they were able to kind of, they were flexible and able to change in and it was malleable. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think that a lot of people look at that and say, look, there are either errors and consistencies or they're not treating the text with seriousness when they themselves are loosely citing, paraphrasing, throwing out approximations, or over time, as you're referring to, copies were made, people actually just didn't really care so much about accuracy. I still think that's why inerrancy always has to relate to the original autographer itself, because I don't think the doctrine can follow through what people did or didn't do with it. I mean, I could give you a poem and tell you all to copy it down accurately, word for word, and copy it a thousand times accurately. That doesn't make it inspired. Um, so the copying, I think, is a side issue. Whenever you saw people making approximations or using those things, the response would be, God knew that. I mean, if you see hyperbole, God's not going to overrule that and say, like, you can't use hyperbole or satire or humor, which are all found in Scripture. No, he let the authors use whatever means they wanted to. Parable, story, I mean, all the genres we've talked about. Then yet God is still superintending that process in the inerrance view to still come out to what he wants it to be so that when you read even hyperbole, you're supposed to interpret it using that hermeneutic and understand what it is, but it's still, to the degree it's used and you understand that hermeneutic, it's still true. You were stating it was further understood, right, that well, God would be wanting to communicate through the finite language of people and so superintending like, the books of the Bible. Um, and it just seems strange to me, at least, at the very least, it seems strange. I don't understand why. Like, well, who's God communicating to? Since we don't have any of those original documents, so he was he communicated to like one one thousandth of a percent of like the entire population of humans that will ever exist. Because who actually saw those original documents? And what we have is not what he communicated. Because unless you're holding the belief that which I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not like that, he superintended given all the interpretations and that they're all totally valid and get us to the same spot. Like. And so it just seems at least strange to me, and that's always been a frustration of mine. It's like, well, if these are God's communication, like, that's just what's fair. Like, why did he communicate to them and not to me? Like, and just left me with like the bones to figure it out. Like, I appreciate that Jeremy said that we shouldn't poke fun at the fact that because we don't have the originals, that it would be silly to say, well, you can't say the originals are inerrant and then not have them, right? I, I, I think that's really a, a good uh, way to look at it. But to answer your question, I believe we have 99% of the originals. I don't mean the originals' existence. I mean, they're gone. But I believe that that's why we have textual criticism. I believe that's what it's about, is trying to recover as much of the original as possible. And you can see that way before our time, as I mentioned earlier in one of the series, about all the way back to even the Alexanders, they were trying to discover earlier things. I mean, the idea of trying to hang on to it as close as possible has been something that the church has been doing for a long time. I can't answer why we don't have the original. But I could answer this. What would it mean if we did? Let's say we have the original, right? Let's say that we have it, and it's just all by itself sitting somewhere. So are we going to all go and view it? I mean, I think that it's a very practical thing that we were ultimately going to make copies. Like, even in Paul's time, they copied his letters, which he even charged them to do, and they traveled around to the different churches. Yes, it would have been great if everybody had copied it without missing a single thing. That would have been great. It would be great if we never discovered any kind of variance in the text. It would be great if the people that Brittany was referring to earlier didn't just decide to change things and do those things, right? But I still see that we have what some people say is 99% of the originals, right, existing in copied form. 
Um, the variants that we have are usually things that we can deal with or are not really that important. But ultimately, whether we, the original still existed, where there's 66 originals sitting in a museum somewhere, we would still be making lots and lots of copies and translations and paraphrases and all the things that we've done because I think that is ultimately God's intent to communicate to people. And I say it because of this reason. If the written word is the way that God wants to communicate to his people, if it's the primary way, I don't want to say it's the only way. I'm not saying that at all, but I want to be very clear. But if it's the primary way, it's the thing that we're supposed to hold things against, uh, it would be even more inefficient for him just to say, and, I, and you could only read the original. There's really many other letters that Paul wrote and like even references some and things like that. And so it's just like, well, God didn't superintend those ones. He just picked whatever ones maybe say Paul wrote. And so that's weird too. But you're you're being you're being skeptical of I mean, you guys ever see that what movie was that? Is it the History of the world where Moses shows up with the 15 commandments and then the tablet breaks and he goes like, the Lord God has given you 15 and one of them like falls down and shatters. He goes, 10 commandments. You know, like, I mean, I think you're reading a little bit of like, well, they lost those. So then it's convenient for them to say they're not inspired. I actually think a more accurate way to be saying it is, you know, something is inspired or it's not. We kind of made that point last week, like it's inspired or not. Um, and a hundred church councils won't make something inspired if it wasn't. Like, for example, let's not talk about Paul. Why was the Didache ultimately, the Didache for those who forgot, is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And for a long time it was very authoritative. Some people cited to it as scripture early on, and eventually a decision was made that, no, this is not inspired. But you'd think, but, you know, this is the teaching of the apostles. Like, I mean, if, if one of the things is apostolic authorship, that should, like, kind of guarantee you're in the canon somehow, shouldn't it? But ultimately they concluded that that wasn't inspired, so I don't know that everything Paul ever wrote, in fact the doctrines of inerrancy would be clear, that Paul did not do everything in his life under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He probably did the letters we have and that's it, that would be the way they would state it. So that maybe if Luke wrote something else, it wouldn't be inspired just because Luke wrote it. I mean, he isn't like guaranteed inspiration in everything he does. He was inspired to write Luke, Acts, and the people who defend inerrancy would say, and that was it, that's what God needed from Luke. And if he wrote a history or another gospel, or if he wrote an addendum or Acts Part 2, people would just say that's just him writing. Sort of on that, like, would, that, would that mean that the process of canonization would have to be superintended by God? Because, like, yeah, we're missing stuff, but we also have, like you said, other quotes and things that just aren't included, like Apocrypha and everything else, like, that, like, if it's not inspired or it's not, and, like, if the Apocrypha aren't inspired, you know, like, well, it was left up to humans to determine that. And so, like, we would have to say that then the canonization of it was superintended by God as well. Well, to say that the Holy Spirit guided the process of the canon, yeah, I wouldn't think that was strange. I mean, the Holy Spirit still works in the world to this day. It's not like the Holy Spirit stopped working and took the rest of the, you know, millennium off. The tradition clearly started that the Holy Spirit was involved. I mean, like, forget the New Testament, the tradition of how we even get... The, the Old Testament scriptures into the Septuagint. They had a tradition, which of course most people now kind of look at and wonder if it really happened, that the elders all went into a room and came up with identical translations and the Holy Spirit was working through them to determine like what was the accurate translation of the Pentateuch and what wasn't. So clearly early on and even before the church and into the church, there was already the view that the Holy Spirit was working in deciding like how to translate and do those things. 
It's not the same thing as saying it's inerrant. It's not the same thing as saying the copies are inerrant. I'm not trying to go there, but I, you can't deny that the Holy Spirit works in the church at all times in, in, in lots of different ways. Most people who look at the canon would say, technically, again, a book is either inspired or it's not. Their job was just to recognize it. It isn't that they made it inspired. Their job was to discover that and to see that this book was clearly inspired. I believe the Holy Spirit illuminated that for them. What about the conversions of the Bible? Cool that like, would you just say, well, we were right, they were wrong? Like... Yeah, because I don't think the doctrine of inerrancy extends that far. Like, when the Council of Trent and the Catholic Church decides that all the Apocrypha are in, because they're reacting against the Reformation and their claim that the Apocrypha, you can't take doctrine out of those books. I know I'm summarizing a great deal of history, but they just go, hey, no fair, can't use those books. And the Catholic Church holds a council and says, they're all inspired. Yeah, I think that the Protestant Church would say that was probably a knee-jerk reaction and probably is wrong. And that's why you can't apply that layer of inerrancy to decisions, I would say, probably even about canonicity. But it would be no surprise, given the cultural setting, that the Protestants would say that. Like, that doesn't make it any more true, just because, it, just because the Protestants see it as a knee-jerk reaction doesn't necessarily mean that it's not possible I mean, it's just a very Protestant perspective sure. there to say that. that that's all. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually not saying it from a Protestant perspective. I mean, I'm saying it more as like, if you have the great deal of rabbinical schools, in fact, almost with unanimity, saying these books are not in, and then 1,540-some years later you say they're in, you could look at it and say that's, there seems, and especially when you see political motivations behind it, you go... I was probably not completely driven by the Holy Spirit. That's my view. I don't want to speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit. For 1,500 years, though, they were used, or at least they were, pra they were part of the practice, though. So I, I think it's more than just saying, well, there was a knee-jerk political reaction, and so thus they became inspired. I mean, for, for centuries, those documents were a part, and still are a part of the faith. And again, that would be a different conversation, yeah. and that, that would take us back even to inspiration, right? Jason. Well, this is kind of the last comment on that as well. They're, they're not just a, a practice in the Western Church that reacted to the Protestant Church. They're, I, when I visited the Orthodox Church, they said they've had it from the beginning. This, some of these books were in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus himself and the other apostles would have read and would have accepted as authoritative. Yeah, that's probably a step too far, but we'll talk about that when we get to translations and versions of the Bible in a couple of weeks, because the Septuagint actually made a clear distinction that they were not authoritative. And even the Catholic Church in its beginning, when Jerome wrote the Vulgate, he had an extensive debate with Augustine about it, and eventually said these are not authoritative and put them separately, and that's why we have the order where they come later. But I don't want to get slide into that whole thing, Lenny. So I just kind of want to make clear, like, it seems so subjective. So when they're choosing the parts of the Bible and the writings that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, okay, we're going to only put the ones that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're recognizing what was inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit <coughs> is telling them what scriptures and what writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's like, how could you even tell, you know? Like, how could you read something and say, oh, this was inspired by the Spirit and this wasn't? But I don't, I, you know, we did a whole section on canonicity, and I don't want to slide back into that. It was not as simple as just looking at it going, what do you guys think? Was this Holy Spirit inspired or not? I mean, remember, we took a different approach on the canon. You have to go back and listen to it. Like, they pretty much knew from the beginning 
and they were kind of debating over a same group of books and they were deciding some weren't in. There was a whole reason they did it. I don't want to slide back into it, but I would just say to your comment that, first of all, the, the weirder concept is that God would sovereignly work through human authors to produce his word. Okay? If I believe that, I have no problem believing that the Holy Spirit would speak to people and say, by the way, those are some of the books that I helped superintend. I'm saying that I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit was still at work, even in aiding the church to develop the canon. But I don't want to be heard as saying that like, the Holy Spirit came and whispered to each person, like, hey, those are the books. In God's sovereignty, he developed the book for us that we're supposed to have. But the way the canon developed and all the, the, the debate and the discussions and what was in and, and, and reacting to heresies and all those things were probably the human way in which it developed and we should pay attention to that. All right, go ahead. We'll take, take, let's take a two-minute break. Let Jason swap this out and wrap up.